Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. One thing that makes it very difficult to interpret a passage like this where Jesus talks about his family is the reality that in our culture, we have a very different view of families than was unquestionable at the time when Jesus was speaking these words to the original audience. Our culture in the last hundred years has seen a rapid, radical transformation of the family, where our culture has steadily devalued, dismantled, destroyed in some cases, redefined the family altogether. Whereas throughout the Old Testament, in the days of Jesus, really all of human history until very recently, uh, the family was everything, the tribe was everything, the clan was everything. That was who you were, that was your identity, that was where you gained a substantial part of the meaning of, of where you came from. And even today we can't escape these issues. Uh, but there are a number of issues in the last hundred years or so that have begun to really separate families, to, to leave families in a very difficult, uh, different place than they have been historically throughout history in all societies, in all cultures uh, throughout time. Um, you know that uh, there's been a rise um, of the legal, through the legalization of no-fault divorce, and no longer requiring biblical grounds for divorce, uh, but no-fault divorce that makes it easy to break families up. There's been a rise in cohabitation before marriage, so that in many cases it's just assumed that's going to be happening, uh, where there is something like a family, but it lacks the stability and the structure of the legal uh, nature of marriage. You recognize even from generation to generation, the rise in abortion has led to the termination of children in the wombs of their mothers. In 2015, the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriages so that marriage, which has always been understood as the union of a man and a woman, um, now has been legalized on the basis of, of people who are of the same sex. And then more recently in 2020, Somerville, Massachusetts, and then in 2021, Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Harvard University is, um, towns have been starting to legally recognize polyamorous relationships, uh, marriages between more than two people. Um, more recently, perhaps, you may have even heard there is something in the, in the news that people are talking about called chosen families. Uh, these lack any kind of legal, formal aspect that would constitute a family, and no stability there. These are rather determined on the basis of emotional connection to different people. And one would presume if these chosen families can be formed on the basis of strong emotional attachments, then they can be dissolved just as quickly. Understand in the days that Jesus was talking, the family was the most absolute, was the most certain thing, not just in your life, but in the life of everyone around you. And in our culture today, we don't have that kind of stability. We don't have that kind of structure. You may be on alternating sides of that. You may have different ideas about what the family could be this morning. You may be in the middle of a broken family. You may have made choices that have led to this. And, and I want to understand the gospel announces so much grace. I want to say that from the beginning. 
What I'm trying to say all of this for is to set the stage to understand that when we come to Jesus' words in our culture, we might be tempted to ask, what's the problem? What's really Jesus getting at? Families can be anything we want them to be today. So what's the problem for Jesus to say these words right now? Who is my mother and who are my brothers? What we are going to see as we study this passage, but also to compare Scripture with Scripture, what Jesus says is not all that he says about marriage. Remember, he said very high uh, standards for marriage and the permanency of marriage. He says other things about children in other contexts, and the the rest of the Old and New Testament says a lot of things, so we're going to compare Scripture with Scripture. What we are going to see is that Jesus here is not diminishing the value of the family. What he is rather doing is elevating the value of the spiritual family. So Jesus isn't saying, your view of family is here, I need to take that down a few notches. What he's saying is, your value of the family is here, and that is right and good, is biblical. But I need you to understand that there is something even higher than this in the spiritual family. Our big idea today then is this, seek first the family of God. Seek first the family of God. And so as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to look at two kinds of families that Jesus is contrasting. First of all, the earthly family, the earthly family. Jesus has much to say here about the nature of the earthly family. And second, the heavenly family, the heavenly family, the earthly family and the heavenly family. Those will be our two points this morning. As we start the first section of the earthly family in verses 46 through 48, I I have two preliminary notes to help us to consider this. The first is I want us to think about the connection of this passage to what has come before. And so look with me again at verse 46. We read, while he was still speaking to the people. Matthew makes it very clear that there is a very tight, very close chronological connection, sequential connection. This was happening where Jesus was having this conversation. We'll talk about what that conversation was in a moment. And now something immediately has interrupted this where his family is trying to get his attention. And he speaks to that issue. So we see a very close sequential connection. Um, uh, ordering to these two passages, connection between these two passages. What is not as clear, however, is the thematic connection. Matthew is not giving us a minute-by-minute playback of Jesus' life. He is very free to talk about certain things out of order or to make sure that we see certain things. And he'll talk about all of those together because he wants us to see them grouped together. So we're thinking about all of those in one context. This is a part of how Matthew is telling a different story than Mark is and how Mark is telling a different story than Luke is and how John is telling a different story than all of them. All of us are giving true accounts of Jesus but they are trying to tell us something by the way they structure their Gospels. And so we have to ask, how does this passage connect with what Jesus spoke about earlier? Because if you remember, this has been a context where Jesus has said much about spiritual warfare. He's been casting out demons. He's warned that if when a demon is cast out, that if you do not have then the Holy Spirit taking residence in your life, That leaves you open to future spiritual attacks where that one demon who's been cast out will bring seven of his demonic buddies who are more evil than he is, and the last state for you will become worse than the first. We talked about that last week. There's no neutrality, spiritually speaking. But what then is the connection between all of that spiritual warfare talk that Jesus has been giving us and what he says here about the family? We'll have to talk about that. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. That's one of the preliminary notes. 
The second preliminary note is to understand what the Bible says about a family. I know this is controversial in, 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 our, in our society. I understand there may be some people who are sitting here today who don't agree with the way the Bible portrays the nature of the family. But let me just refresh our memories with what the Bible says about the family. The Bible portrays the family as the basing building, basic building block of society. The family is understood to be created by the union of one man and one woman in the lifelong covenant of marriage that can be dissolved only in extraordinary cases by just one of two possible biblical grounds for divorce. Not that that's a good thing, but it's a recognition that the covenant has already been broken and therefore divorce is permissible in those and only those situations. We then understand that the family then would include biological children born out of the union of that man and that woman, as well as any adopted children who are legally brought into this family relationship. And then the Bible understood that that individual family, that nuclear family, was connected to a wide range of other extended family members, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, etc. In Jesus' day, this was an understanding of the family that was without question. There was no doubt about it. There were no different opinions. No one was debating this issue, which makes what Jesus says stand out. And so we have to understand the context of, that Jesus is speaking into to understand why what Jesus said was so scandalous and both what he was saying and what he was not saying through this passage. So let's get into what Jesus says. Let's look back at verse 46. Again, this is while, they were still, while he was still speaking to the people. Behold... So an interruption here, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Now, stop there for a moment. Why does Jesus' family want to talk with Jesus? Well, Matthew does not answer this question. Some have tried to argue on the basis of the parallel passage in the Gospel of Mark. If you look at Mark 3, verse 31, uh, the that's the parallel verse to what, what happens here. And if you read in Mark chapter 3, a little bit earlier in that chapter, there's another verse that isn't directly connected to the passage, but it's close enough that some people think uh, Mark 3 verse 21 influences how we should read Mark 3 verse 31, which again is the parallel passage we're reading here. And Mark 3 21 in the ESV says this, and when his family heard it, what Jesus was teaching, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. And so some people think, well, Jesus's family must have been concerned about Jesus' mental state. And that's why they're interrupting him, really in the parallel passage in Mark 3.31, in our passage, therefore, here in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. The problem with that is in the, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 3, verse 20, 21, that verse about the family saying he's out of his mind, the word for family there is really a phrase that means those who are with him or those who are close to him, those who are beside him. It's really unclear that that's talking about his family. The ESV translates it as family, but the King James Version has friends. The New American Standard Bible translates it with the phrase, his own people. So it's not entirely clear that that was a statement actually about Jesus' family to inform us about what Jesus' mother and brothers are doing here. We're just not certain. But whatever may have been happening in Mark that Mark wants to get across and the way he's telling the gospel about Jesus, Matthew tells us nothing. Matthew is not interested in the motivation behind why Jesus' family came to talk to him. Matthew is interested in showing us Jesus' reaction as he thinks about what the effect of this would be if he went with his family, if he departed from what he was doing. And from Jesus' reaction, which we're going to study in a moment, 
It's very clear that Jesus thinks that for him to go with his family would be to abandon the public ministry that he is engaged with at this time. He could follow his earthly family, but that would take him away from this public ministry that he has to do right, right here. The main point that Matthew wants us to see then is that Jesus is not willing to let his family on earth draw him away from the will of his Father in heaven. He's not willing to allow his family on earth to draw him away from doing the will of his Father in heaven. Now, this is where we understand from the context, their original views on family, again, the the absolute certainty of the nature of the family in that time. Understand when Jesus said this, this would have been an astonishing statement. It's an astonishing statement, especially, we can't get our minds totally around this because the family has been so redefined in so many directions over the last hundred years. But even in our time, we sense some of this. It'd be a hard thing to just, for most people to just walk away from your family altogether, although some do. But what is happening in Jesus's culture, whatever difficulties that may be in our society, this would have been the height of an understanding of some kind of disrespect against your family. The, the family was held in the highest honor in its claims over a person. But again, as we're going to talk through the rest of this sermon, Jesus is not so much questioning or trying to lower the value of the earthly family. What he is rather doing is he's saying there is something higher than the claims your earthly family has on you, and that's the nature of the heavenly family. Therefore, seek first, Jesus is saying, the family of God. You know, uh, I teach a Westminster Standards uh, Sunday school class. Um, Some of you have been in it. We we go through uh, essentially the doctrine of what the Bible teaches on a number of different fronts. One of the things that we teach in that class when we come to the the Ten Commandments, um, I think it's around third or fourth quarter, so just a couple of months ago, we were going through the Ten Commandments in the larger catechism. It is a wonderful um, set of questions and answers talking about how we to interpret the Ten Commandments. And in that conversation, we talk about how there are two tables of the law. The first law being how we should love God. Again, as Jesus summarized one of the great commandments, he quoted and summarized Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. It said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And that summarizes what's required of us in commandments 1 through 4. And then we talk about the second table of the law that deals with our love for our neighbor. Again, Jesus summarizing the second great commandment, quotes Leviticus 19.18 you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But as we talk about that, we give some special attention in this class to the middle two commandments, the fourth commandment and the fifth commandment. That's on, the, on either side of those two tables of the law for loving God and loving people. And what we talk about is it's really interesting how the Ten Commandments draws attention to those in two ways. First of all, these are the only two commandments that are stated positively. Even if you don't know much about the Ten Commandments, you probably know that most of them begin, thou shalt not. Those are negative commandments. Those two commandments, commandments four and five, are stated positively. The other, two, the other issue that makes them unique is that they are not only focused on only our relationship to God or only our relationship to our neighbor, they're really focused on both. We talk about these as the hinge commandments. These represent the transition from our relationships and duties to God and our relationships and duties to our fellow neighbors. And so it's interesting when you think about the fourth commandment, again, it's positively stated, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, but it also has a view on our neighbor. So it's part of how we relate to God, remembering him each Sabbath day, Lord's day by Lord's day, like here today. But it also has view, it means not only for me, but also to my neighbors, I have to give rest. 
my son or my daughter can't do work. I'm not supposed to let my male or my female servant, I don't have any, but my male or my female servant, they shouldn't be doing work. My ox shouldn't be doing work. My donkey shouldn't be doing work. We're giving thought to other people, not just to God, but to other people. Well, the same thing in the fifth commandment, and this is really what's in view with this passage. It's honor your father and mother. Again, it could have been saying, you shall not dishonor your father and mother, but it's stated positively, honor your father and mother. But then it gives a promise that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God is giving to you. The way we treat our parents is fundamentally connected to our relationship with God. In other words, our parents are given to us to be the first relationship we have, the first neighbors we are given, to teach us not only how to honor them, but then to honor our Father in heaven. And so what Jesus is saying here, in a context of, co of a culture that understood this, this was an absolutely shocking thing. Jesus seemed to be dishonoring his mother. Honor your father and mother. But yet Jesus would not go with her when she was trying to draw him away from the ministry that was given to him with his heavenly father. Now, again, I understand there are so many exceptions, so many different situations today. I know some of you may not have grown up in a, in a home where your mother and your father modeled that well for you, for you to know what it meant to know and love your father in heaven. My heart breaks for you. That is not good. That's not God's perfect plan. I'm not here trying to rub salt in any wounds. I am telling you what the Bible says because it's important that we speak clearly about the truth. It's important that in a world of confusion about what the family is or might be, that we speak the truth about God's design and purposes for the function of the family, especially so this morning, we do not misunderstand what Jesus is saying here today. You know, in 2021, 40% of all live births were to unmarried parents. That's a rise up from 28% in 1990. It's a rise in 1960 from 5%. We are discovering a world of what it's like when increasingly people are not tethered together in the lifelong covenant of marriage when children are born into this. And we're sowing the whirlwind as a culture and we are going to reap the whirlwind as a culture. In the church then, we have to be absolutely clear about God's designs for our families. And we have to understand that Jesus is in no way getting away from that. There's grace and forgiveness for any who have gone astray from this, who have transgressed these, but we need to see the danger. God has a special purpose for the family, and Jesus is saying nothing to detract from that. We must feel the weight of this if we are to understand what Jesus is saying about the even higher claims that the heavenly kingdom, the heavenly family has upon us. So who then is our heavenly family? Well, this brings us to the second part of our sermon on the heavenly family in verses 49 through 45. After Jesus hears this report that his family wants him to follow him, to leave his ministry, we read in verse 49, and stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Jesus gives two answers to tell us about who this heavenly family is. This is the first answer. The first answer is that his disciples are the heavenly family of God, constitute the heavenly family of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus. Disciples means learners, those who are following after Jesus to learn from him and to seek his way of life. That's the first answer he gives. The second answer he gives in verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. 
So Jesus is saying as a second answer that it's those who do the will of his Father in heaven that constitute this heavenly family. His disciples and those who do the will of his Father in heaven. Now, the fact that Jesus identifies spiritual family members helps us to understand that question I raised but didn't answer earlier. What does this have to do with the spiritual warfare that's happening in the rest of Matthew 12 leading up to this point? Um, one commentator, a man named Lenski, R.C.H. Lenski, writes this. He says, this is probably the reason that Matthew ends this section on the clash with the Pharisees by adding the incident in which Jesus calls his disciples his brothers, sisters, and mother. And then he writes this, however hopeless this generation as such may be, some are one for Christ even among such people. As bad as the culture was then, as bad as the culture is today, even in such a context, some will be won into the family of God as they become disciples of Jesus, as they learn increasingly to do the will of Jesus' Father in heaven. Now, as we saw last week, there's a spiritual war raging all around us. There is no neutrality. This is a world with devils filled that threatens to undo us. As we sang in A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the hymn by Martin Luther, those who merely tidy up their lives are going to end up in a worse state than the first. That's what Jesus warned about last week. One demon exercised, kicked out, if he is given the opportunity, is going to come back with seven other more evil demons. Who could possibly stand against such an onslaught? The answer is Jesus' disciples, those who do the will of his Father in heaven. Here, then, is where safety is found. Here's where refuge is found. It's in Jesus. So what does Jesus mean when he talks about doing the will of his Father in heaven. Well, we should remember, this is something Jesus talked about earlier in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You want to know how to get to heaven? You want to know how to enter into the heavenly kingdom? You must do the will of Jesus' Father in heaven. Now, let me be very clear. Jesus in that passage and in this passage is not saying that we are saved by works. Here's the list of things you must do, and once you check them off, uh, turn in your completed worksheet to God, and you will be admitted forthwith into the kingdom of heaven. That's not how that works. What Jesus is saying when he talks about doing the will of our Father in, or His Father in heaven, He's saying that salvation only comes on God's terms. We don't define our own paths to heaven. We're given the option of doing it my way all through life, but there's no promise there of salvation because there is no other name than Jesus given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Salvation coming on God's terms means the requirement that anyone who would be saved must believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not by works, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What's the will of Jesus' his Father? It's that we should find salvation through faith in Christ. That's what Jesus is telling us about here. He doesn't answer all the questions here. That's not the purpose to answer every question, to tie up every loose end here in his earthly ministry. But having the rest of Scripture, we know this is exactly what Jesus is telling us as we interpret Scripture according to Scripture. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is a faith that transcends bloodlines, transcends even the biological family. Now, again, that's not to take down the importance of the biological family. 
It's not uh, trying to take down the importance of the earthly family. It is rather that Jesus is saying there's something even greater than this. Jesus is creating his forever family, especially through what the rest of the Bible talks about as adoption. It's not just biological. Jesus is bringing into his family adopted sons and daughters. Now, my wife and I have one adopted son, and by God's grace, we're going through the process leading toward the adoption of another one of our sons. And at the adoption ceremony, um, if you go to it, it's, I didn't know what to expect, but being there, it's so interesting. The judge very clearly goes through legal responsibilities of adopted parents to make sure that adoptive parents understand that there is no distinction among your children. Your biological and your adoptive children are on exactly equal footing. If my wife and I were to die, the inheritance would be equally divided among our adopted children. Our adopted children have equal claim to our duties as parents. Uh, Our adopted children get everything right alongside with the biological children. And this is the forever family. It's not a merely chosen family. There is a legal structure to this that brings people into a real and vital relationship into a family. Notice, however, how Jesus talks about his family. It's so interesting. When my wife and I had to take vows before the judge, we were the only ones to take vows. Our children, as much as, well, the inheritance, as small as it may be, is being divided up right in front of them, as they, right in front of their eyes, as much as they may or may not have thoughts about children coming into the family, they don't get to say anything. It's purely an act of the parents. But look at what Jesus says here. In verse 49, stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he says, Here are my mother." and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What the Bible shows us is that the Father does not sort of directly adopt children into His family. The Father sent His only begotten Son, not biological, God uh, does not have a body in that sense, but His only begotten Son, whatever that mysterious union between the Father and the Son from all eternity past means, The Father sent His only begotten Son into the world, and His Son took upon Himself a human nature. Why? So that He could become our brother. The primary entrance into the family of God is not first directly through the Father, as much as the Father's love absolutely stands behind everything that Jesus, our brother, came into this world to do. The primary relationship, entrance into the family of God, is through our elder brother, Jesus Christ. Jesus came into the world to adopt siblings to himself through faith in him, to bring these siblings along with him, to present them to his father. He brothered up to us so that we might be counted children of almighty God. Our earthly families are so important because they define vital, irreplaceable aspects of where we come from. Your identity, who you are, is bound up in your biological family for good or for ill. We cannot underestimate the importance of the biological family. But our heavenly family defines where we are going. Our earthly family defines where we come from. Our, earth, our heavenly family defines where we are going. And this is as important as the, the family is, the biological family is, The heavenly family is of far greater, even more infinite, eternal importance. 
The application from this short passage of Scripture then is easy. Do not let your earthly priorities keep you from your heavenly Father. Do not let your earthly priorities keep you from your heavenly Father. Now, one aspect of this application we have to think about in terms of the sin we talked about last week, the sin of individualism. Again, family is not a very high priority in our culture. Uh, Maybe for you, whereas an older culture would have looked at with absolute understanding of the responsibilities held of children to parents and things like that, maybe your family is not what could draw you away from Jesus. Maybe it's actually something else, not your family, but something other, some other earthly priorities. In individualism, you can pursue whatever you want. You don't have to worry about burdens and responsibilities put on you. But this is not what the Bible teaches. The key point that we have to draw at a very broad general level is that earthly things are always going to be clamoring for our attention. Just as Jesus' mother and brothers were trying to clamor for his attention and draw him away, all manner of earthly things will clamor for our attention. Sometimes those can be good things. The family is a good thing. But Jesus is showing us that even here, a good thing cannot pull us away from the infinitely good thing, our heavenly family. So I want you to think, what earthly pursuits might pull you away from following Jesus faithfully? School or career achievements? Money, the things that money can buy? Your friends, maybe their affection, their respect, their influence. Maybe the emotional bond is stronger to them than anyone else. Watching sports, television, movies, listening to music. Paying attention to politics, current events, the news. Recreational games, sports, maybe you're athletic. Which of these things, as good as they may be in their own context, become evil because they are distracting you from what is of ultimate eternal importance, from Jesus himself? These earthly things cannot provide eternal satisfaction. Only what is heavenly can. So if you think about the primary way to apply this application is that what we need more than anything else is to be reconciled to our Father in heaven. All these earthly things, whatever they may be, these can feel good in the moment, but they are poor substitutes to heal the wounds of your souls. And they are utterly worthless to resolve God's wrath against sin. And they cannot love you back with an infinite, eternal love of the Father in His Son as you are adopted into the forever family of God. The Scriptures teach that our Heavenly Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever should believe in Him would not perish, but instead should have everlasting life. Learn then to love Him, to love your Father in Heaven by loving His Son, Jesus Christ, who came into this world, who died for your sins, who raised up in victory over sin, death, and the devil, and who is now ever living to intercede to pray for you. Find in Jesus a refuge to flee the Lorath to come. Embrace God's love for the children adopted in His beloved Son. But the secondary application, again, as we think about the distance culturally, as we interpret what this passage is in our own world that has its own thoughts about what the family is, the secondary application that we must understand here is that following Jesus will lead us back to the family. Family may not hold as high of an intuitive claim to responsibility today. People don't feel family obligations in the way that people used to. But that doesn't mean that we are better keeping the words of Jesus. Oh, I'm I'm happy to walk away from my mother and brothers. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? Absolutely not. In other words, 
We do not keep Jesus' instructions by generally lowering our regard for the family. Again, Scripture interprets Scripture. What Jesus says here is in the context of a wider conversation, a battle he's having with the scribes and the Pharisees. He wants to give us comfort. Some will still, even in this evil world, come to believe in me and come to be a part of my family. But the rest of the Scripture tells us exactly what Jesus wants for the family. If we study God's Word, we discover that Jesus leads us right back to the biological family, along with the inclusion of adopted children. One of the key prophecies about the return of Christ was actually bound up in the restoration of the family. In Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6, one of the prophecies looking forward to the day of the coming of Jesus to behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The coming of Jesus was bound up in restoring the family. And then we read in the letters of Paul and Peter, the letters of Paul to Ephesians and Colossians, the instructions given there, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. God loves the family. God loves the family. He's the one who created it. Jesus doesn't want us to abandon our families. He simply wants us to recognize the priority of the heavenly family. But where all of this leads is this, you don't have to make a choice. You don't have to choose between one or another in an absolute sense. You have to certainly choose the heavenly family over your earthly family if your earthly family is trying to lead you away from your heavenly family. But Jesus leads us back to the earthly family in order to be a vessel in which our families are drawn together into our Father's heavenly family. God promises, in fact, to build His heavenly family through earthly families. We had a fantastic example of this today in infant baptism. The Scriptures teach that God makes real promises to the children of believers, even in the extraordinary grace of the New Testament, even to one believing spouse in the marriage. It wasn't that in the Old Testament. The promises were weaker. Only two believing spouses had this. Otherwise, the children were cut off. In the New Testament, even one believing spouse is enough for God to make special promises to our infants. We don't baptize infants, as Andrew said, if you could hear it, uh, because we think that applying water to their heads magically saves them in that moment by that act. Absolutely, they, like all of us, must believe to be saved. We baptize because God tells us that the promises of the gospel are for our children after us. And those promises are signified and they are sealed to our children in baptism. These promises are our children by their birthright. Then we pray for our children that they would claim their birthright by faith. We disciple them, we teach them, we correct them, we rebuke them, we encourage them, we exhort them in a way that is only possible for families. I can only be the pastor to your children. I cannot be a parent to your children. God does something special in and through families. And I want to give you a special encouragement for the importance of family worship. And fathers, I'll talk directly to you. The Bible gives fathers a unique role of leadership in the home. I want to encourage you, if you are not yet leading families in daily family worship, where you're opening the Bible together, where you're spending time in prayer, and where you're singing together as a family, it's never too late to start. 
This is one of the main primary ways in which our children are discipled so they are not merely members of our earthly families, but rather that God ushers them in, disciples them into his heavenly family forever. Wives, encourage your husbands in this regard. Children, do not be a burden on your parents as they try to lead you in these ways. I remember when my parents were trying to institute family worship in our own home, and I was the biggest opponent of it. I had the worst attitude, and I look back on that with so much regret and shame. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. If you've never done family worship, keep it short, keep it simple, keep it scriptural. Open the Bible, sing together, pray together. That's it. Make it very short. But every day, day by day, as you're working through the word of the Lord in your families, your families are not just places to have a good time, to have family reunions together, to play board games, as important, as good as those things may be. Your families then become the vessels in which your heavenly Father leads your children into glory and where he keeps his covenant to a thousand generations. And pray for your children. Because as good of a job as you may or may not do, the Holy Spirit alone will be the one to give them faith. Pray with and for your children. With these things as mind, let's pray that Jesus will give us the kind of families both on earth and in heaven that he wants us to have. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the family. Father, I recognize that there are so many broken families in this world, so many different aspects of brokenness even here this morning, and I pray that you would be the one who brings healing and comfort, that you would restore people by grace, that you would cleanse people by the blood of Jesus Christ, that you would put people on new standings all because of what Christ has done, our elder brother, for us on our behalf. But we pray, Father, that our families, earthly families, would then be places of joy, places where the gospel seeds take great root in good soil, and that families would be ongoingly involved in the work of removing rocks and breaking up hard ground and, and pruning thorns and, and weeding those out of the gardens of our families. That, Father, your word, the seed of your word, would grow up and bear fruit tenfold, twentyfold, one hundredfold and that you would continue to keep your covenant to a thousand generations. We pray this according to your mercies in Christ Jesus. Amen.